tonight, if you, uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 4. And uh, as always, there are uh, scripture in your notes, and we'll have them on the screen as well. But before we get into it tonight, I want to, um, I want to uh, just take a little bit of time to give you a, a recap. Um, we are in a series entitled Miracles and Meaning, in which we are in the book of John. We are looking at eight major miracles that Jesus did, and we are kind of digging a little bit beneath the surface to see um, what what other meanings lie beneath the surface. And um, the way that we define miracle is perhaps a little bit different than some may think is the right way. Um, but let me just give you a little bit of a word picture here. Uh, I've defined a miracle as if God were, who is the eternal being, is outside of time and space. He is eternal, set in eternity. It's as if time and space are in this capsule, that he has created all the cosmos and plants and planets and people and all these things. And he is outside of time and space. Thus, nothing that happens within time and space has any type of effect on God because he's the eternal being. But every now and then, the creator God chooses to break into time and space and to do something that is beyond natural. It is supernatural in which we call a miracle. And so we have defined a miracle as such that when the supernatural or God breaks into that, uh, which is time and space, and he interferes with that, which is natural, this is what we call a miracle. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Christ as he turns water into wine, one of my favorite teachings, probably that I've done on the Wednesday night thus far, just so packed with so much insight, um, what the Lord was doing there. But what we find is that, especially in John's gospel, that every miracle is a miracle in and of itself. And it's miraculous, it's incredible, people applaud and they celebrate, we celebrate with them even thousands of years later. But what we find is that miracles, especially in the Gospel of John, they always point to a deeper meaning. They're always pointing to something different. And so in John's Gospel, um, the word miracle is not actually the word miracle. John, he would call them signs. And the reason he calls them signs is because he is saying, look, there are miracles, but these miracles are actually signs that mean Messiah has come. And so these miracles are signs that point to Jesus, and they say that he is the Messiah that you have all waited on. Now, beyond that meaning, there are other meanings beneath the surface that we try to unpack as uh, weeks go in and go out. And so tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to be in John chapter 4, the latter part of that chapter, and we are going to talk about Jesus as he heals son of a nobleman. Now, Last time we left off, Jesus was at a wedding festival in Cana. Since the wedding, Jesus has has kind of been on the move. He's been traveling a good bit. Cana is in the northern part of Israel. Jesus has traveled uh, really to the the middle, kind of southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is. He did a little bit of ministry in Jerusalem, but then he goes over to the region of Judea. He does a little bit of work there. He moves then to Samaria does some work there, but then all of a sudden we find him back in Cana, and we're going to come back to that in just a couple of minutes. But what we find is that Jesus, as he makes these treks all around these places, his ministry is not really gaining what you or I may call traction. Uh, There's not a ton of popularity that is really following the things that Jesus, especially in the beginning of his ministry, 
as he goes to all these different cities, but he finds himself for a second time in the city of Cana. And this is where scripture picks up in chapter 4, um, verse 46 here. The scripture reads, So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But the official was insistent, and he said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to the man, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he went on his way. As the man was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at what hour that his son had began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour or about 1 p.m. in the afternoon, the fever had left him. Now, before we continue on, let me just say uh, uh, one, one quick little thing. There was a question that a lot of people have regarding this text. They want to know, well, was the boy instantly healed when Jesus spoke the word? Because the text here says that at the seventh hour, the fever left him. It almost insta uh, uh, indicates an instantaneous action that the fever leaves the boy's body. But the text says earlier that it was at the seventh hour that the boy began recovering. He was, in other words, he was in the process of recovering. So there are some people that say, was he instantaneously healed? Or was there a process of healing that began at the moment? And the truth of the matter is we have no clue. Okay, I have no clue. I don't know what the right answer is. But I think it, it provides for us um, some insight here. The language is very specific between these two um, words that are used. And I think that the Lord chose to maybe use um, this type of wording because he wants us to understand that miracles happen in a lot of different ways. Miracles cannot be kept inside of a box that we have. Just because a person may not be instantaneously healed does not negate or make another miracle that's a progressive miracle uh, you know, deficient or insignificant. Um, we must treat miracles with a sense of reverence and respect according to how the Lord chooses to perform the miracle. Now, some people would say, well, if, the, if you say the boy wasn't healed instantly, then you lack faith because we all know that miracles happen instantly. Even with Jesus, there's a moment we see in Scripture, again, inspired by the Spirit of God. Jesus goes, he lays hands on a blind man. Jesus says, open your eyes and tell me what you see. The blind man says, I see something. It's like trees. I don't know if it's men or it's trees. And Jesus goes and prays for him again and then removes his hands. And the man says, now I see clearly. And so in other words, this is a miracle, a progressive miracle. In other words, it wasn't necessarily instantaneous. It was something that God set in motion for healing. And so there are times when God, even in our day, will instantaneously perform a type of miracle that will happen in a moment, but then there are times where God begins the process of recovering of our bodies. And it's no less valid, it is no less important than the miraculous healing in the moment. Okay, so they say that it was yesterday about 1 p.m. when the fever left him. The father knew that this was the same hour, <coughs> excuse me, 
when he had said, or when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he, the man himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, Father, as we open your holy, sacred word tonight, my prayer is that the indwelling spirit of God will reveal to us as individuals that which we need to hear. Whether I say it or not is really beside the point. You know how to speak to your people on every level, and I pray that you would do that thing tonight. I do pray for myself that you'll help my voice, this congestion, issues, whatever. Help me to accomplish the task at hand, I pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. You may or may not have heard of a phenomenon. Even if you haven't heard of the phenomenon, you have experienced the phenomenon. It's something that is called the temporary suspension of disbelief. Okay, I know that's a mouthful. The temporary suspension of disbelief. And what this is, we usually experience this um, whenever we're watching movies or reading a book or telling a joke, something like that. This is the, the moment when our brains, even unconsciously, our brains shift and we begin to look beyond that which is real and we embrace something that may be possible. Even though it's not necessarily real in this moment, it may be a possibility, okay? So let me uh, give you an example. If you've ever watched Superman on television, right? You have experienced a temporary suspension of disbelief, right? And so what that means is that you have looked beyond what is real, a man flying in tights in a cape, okay? You've looked beyond what is real and you have embraced a possibility, right? Because probably somewhere in your mind, you're like, I've never seen a dude in blue tights fly. But maybe aliens are real. And maybe there has been an alien that has landed on our planet and the density of our planet is less than his planet. He can fly through the air. Maybe that's a possibility. Your brain in the moment has just embraced that possibility so that you can enjoy the film. You have set what you know to be real aside so that you can embrace a possibility. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, Jurassic Park. If you've ever seen this movie, you have set aside what you know to be real. Dinosaurs do not exist, right? You've set that aside and you have embraced the possibility, well, maybe scientists can find DNA from a mosquito from ages ago and maybe they can extract it and mix it with frog DNA and I don't know, maybe dinosaurs can't exist. Let's watch the movie and find out how, right? So you've set aside, which is, and this is what's so funny, our brains are incredible organs that God has given us. They are incredible um, our brains work so seamlessly in and out of this temporary suspension of disbelief that we will watch a movie like Jurassic Park, right? And we'll see um, a, a woman. There's this one scene in one of the Jurassic Park movies where there is a T-Rex that is chasing a woman down the road, right? And in your mind, you're like, she is dino-baked. Like, she is done. This T-Rex is about to eat her. And then you're like on the edge of your seat and you have anxiety. You're like, oh, I hope she gets away. I hope she gets away. Some of you may be like, I hope she gets eaten because I don't like her character. Uh, whatever the case may be, you're watching her run down the road. And all of a sudden the camera pans out and you say, oh, T-Rex, don't get her, don't get her. And then you look 
And you say, I cannot believe they put her running down the road in high heels. You're like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm turning this movie off because they have a woman running down the road in high heels. That's so unrealistic, right? But about four seconds ago, you were having an anxiety attack because there was a T-Rex chasing the woman down the road. You understand what I'm saying? In, in a moment, you have taken uh, uh, the temporary suspension of disbelief and you have applied it and then you came back into reality and back and forth and back and forth. Now, let me, let me be very, very clear. The temporary suspension of disbelief is not what is happening to this man. Okay, it is similar to what is happening to this man. But temporary suspension of disbelief is it only applies to fiction. It's not the real world. It only applies to things that are made up and that are fake. Okay? Faith does not deal with fiction. Faith deals with reality, but it looks to a greater reality. It sees what is here and it kind of sets it aside and says, though I know this is real, I know this sickness is real, I'm going to set this aside and I'm going to look to a greater reality that Christ is king and he's healer. Right? And so that is the difference, but they are kind of similar. And so in this instance, this man experiences a faith that, that honestly, even in scholarship and, and different levels of, of reading and academia, this level of faith that this man has oftentimes goes overlooked and underappreciated. And so tonight, as we, uh, as we dig into um, this miracle of the healing of the nobleman's son, um, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about three things that God reveals to us about himself through the miracle. And then at the end, what I want to do is I want to come back around and I want to talk to us for a few minutes, if we have time, Lord willing. I want to talk to us about the reality that although we believe that God is uh, uh, preparing us for a season where we are going to see an increase in the miraculous activity. I believe that. I pray for that. I believe we are in a preparation season to see more of God's miraculous work. I believe that. But I think at the same time, there comes a tremendous responsibility to those who have been entrusted to experience God in those ways. And so I just want to talk to us about three or four cautions. I want to talk to us about the blessing of miracles but I also want to talk to us about, about the pitfalls of miracles if we're not careful and kind of hopefully give us a, a little bit of a balance act here. Lord willing, we'll have some time to do that. So tonight I want to start with uh, talking about three things that this miracle reveals to us about God. The first element is this. The miracle reveals to us that Jesus responds to us based on how we host his presence when he comes, okay? The miracle reveals to us that Jesus responds to us based on how we host his presence when he comes. Let's go back to Jesus's traveling itinerary. He begins in John, in John 2, excuse me. He begins in Cana in John chapter 2. From Cana, he travels down to Jerusalem, which is here in the middle kind of southern part. From Jerusalem, he goes to Judea in John chapter 3, okay? From John chapter 3, or excuse me, in John chapter 4, and then in John chapter 4 again, we find him back in Samaria, and by the end of John chapter 4, we find him back in the north in Cana, okay? And the question is, 
why does Jesus make this enormous loop from north to south back north again instead of just camping out for a couple of years in each place and doing an equal amount of the miraculous that he chooses to do? Now, nerd out with me for just one moment, okay? Um, Jesus here, what we see um, in John chapters 3 and 4 is we see Jesus giving us kind of like a micro sampling of a commandment that he's going to give to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, right? He says this, he says, listen, the Spirit of God is going to fall on you, and when he does, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? In John 3, we find Jesus in Jerusalem talking to Nicodemus. At the beginning of John 4, Jesus is baptizing disciples in Judea. Later in John 4, Jesus is hanging out with a woman at a well, where? In Samaria. By the end of chapter 4, Jesus is back in Cana, and he's dealing with a man who is a Gentile, which is representative of people who are the ends of the earth. Okay, so it's like a microcosm of the great commandment that Jesus is going to push. But the question I want to propose is why does Jesus begin in Cana, go all the way south and loop back up into Cana and to begin to do all this miraculous work? And I would come to the conclusion that it is based on the way that the people in Cana and especially uh, Capernaum welcomed the presence of God and how those in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria did not host his presence well, that Jesus revealed himself to them at a greater level and at a greater measure. By far, exponentially, Jesus does far more miracles in, in Capernaum than any other city during his earthly ministry. By far. Cana is not far behind. There are only a, a few there but Capernaum, in this region, this Galilean region, Jesus just unfolds his glory. And the question has got to be asked, why does Jesus choose to, to reveal himself at, at such a great level in this place? And I have come to the conclusion, and I, and I genuinely believe this. I believe it is because the people of Capernaum, the people of Cana, welcomed the presence of Jesus to a greater measure than those in the other cities that Jesus traveled to. Now, I say all that to simply say this for us and for myself tonight. When God comes to visit, it matters how we host him. It matters how we welcome the presence of the Lord when he comes. You remember when Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, right? The Bible says that the people were looking at him. Jesus was teaching and trying to do miracles. And, and the people, looked, they said, that's Jesus, that's Joseph's boy. I went to elementary school with him. I know him. What do you mean Messiah? And the Bible says that because so many people disregarded Jesus, the Bible says this in Mark chapter 6, that Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed. Listen to me. You don't find Jesus amazed very often, right? But when he is amazed, it's one of two reasons. He's either amazed at the level of faith, or he's amazed at the lack of faith. And in Nazareth, Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith. 
Now, most translations say that Jesus could not perform any miracles there, okay? Um, let me just say probably a more accurate translation is that Jesus would not perform miracles there. If you ever hear somebody teach and say, well, Jesus was handcuffed, he couldn't do anything, that is, that is not an accurate teaching of the uh, omnipresent, um, omnipotent God, okay? Um, there is nothing that enables God to do anything, okay? When God performs, when, when, when we do not have faith in God, it's not that we are shackling God, it's simply that God is withholding himself from us. When we have faith and we welcome God and we welcome the miraculous works of God, when, when we welcome and host God well, he is definitely more eager to pour out his presence and to do the miraculous work. But we can never think so highly of ourselves that we control what God does or does not do. He is the sovereign one. And so we got to make sure that though faith is important, as a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need to accentuate. We need to lean into faith, but we can never deceive ourselves into thinking that everything revolves around how much faith I have, okay? We see several instances in Scripture where it appears that we, we either don't hear anything about a person's faith or we hear people say, listen, I don't have faith. Jesus, help me, and he does something miraculous um, I think faith kind of fuels the desire of God to pour out his spirit on his children, uh, but he is never shackled by anything, okay? And so when, when God does come, it is important how we host his presence for Nazareth. There, there's uh, uh, Dr. Sproul, he's a phenomenal theologian writer. He would say that because of how Nazareth judged Jesus when he came, that the father began to judge Nazareth by withholding himself. You understand that sometimes the judgment of God is not always active. It's not always God doing something. Sometimes the judgment of God is God not doing something. And that's exactly what Nazareth began to feel. And the question is, well, why? Why would they come under this type of judgment? And frankly, it's because they did not host the presence of Jesus well. They had disdain for him. You know what it's like when you have people coming over to your house, you have guests that are coming over. Um, what do you do? You, you prepare for when those people are coming, right? Um, my wife and I, we, you know, we've lived away from family for almost 20 years. For the last 20 years, everywhere that we've lived, it's been hours of a drive for us to go to our family or them to come to us. And um, so what we decided to do about 10 years ago when we moved here is we decided that on Thanksgiving and Easter, we were going to open up our home to people who did not have um, family, immediate family to, to visit with them and to eat and stuff. And we were just going to be like, hey, man, if you want to come over to our house, we're going to have Easter you know, dinner and you know, Thanksgiving meal and all this kind of stuff. And it was incredible. We did it for a number of years. And we would have we would have 20, 30, sometimes more than 30 people come to our house on these things. And it was amazing. And then we had 20 or 30 kids and couldn't do it anymore. But the point is, we did it for a while and it was amazing. But let me tell you what, leading up to that moment, it was not so amazing, right? Because the week before, like the entire week before, what's it all about? Preparation, right? I, I am preparing for the guests to come. Why? Because I want to host them well. 
right? And so we would like make phone calls and text people and we would ask them about their favorite food, what they loved, what they didn't love. Are you allergic to anything? And if you are allergic to like almonds, we'll make you a little slice of pie that big so you can have it and not die in our house. Um, we, will, we will do whatever. We will accommodate you. We would have talks with our children and we would say, listen, um, you know, uh, I know this family, they're bringing their little one and I know that they're super aggressive and like punch you and try to tackle you, just endure it and count it as, you know, martyr for, for the kingdom, just love on this little kid or whatever. We'd have talks with each other, my wife and I, we would say, you know, um, you know, Joe and Sue, they've, you know, they've kind of been having some, some struggles in the marriage. Maybe, you know, they just had a miscarriage a couple months ago. Let's make sure we don't talk too much about babies, right? Because we don't want to feed their wound. Why? Because we want to host them well. When they leave our house, we want them to leave with the, with the feeling, I can't wait till they invite me back. That's, that's the feeling when someone comes to visit. That's the feeling that I want them to leave with. When they, when they finally get to my house, what am I doing? I'm hyper-focused on them. I'm accommodating them. I'm, I'm focusing the conversation around them. My son, Easton, he's like 13. He loves to play chess. We play chess almost every single night of my life. He beats me about 80% of the time, okay? But when my guests come over for Easter, guess what me and Easton are not doing at night? We're not playing chess. Why? Because in that moment, it's not about me and Easton. Who's it about? It's about the guest. And if I want them to feel loved and honored, not only am I going to prepare a place for them, but when they arrive, I'm going to treat them like I want them to be there. And so you can connect the analogy here. And so I would suggest to us that when the Spirit of God comes and visits with us in this house, that we must be a people who host Him well. We've got to be a people that forethink coming in to the reverent presence of Almighty God. We, you know, I, I know what it's like. Like I said, I got like 47 kids or something, but I know what it's like trying to get that many kids ready in the morning to go to church and not cussing on the way to church. You know what I'm saying? I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like when you go to get in the vehicle with your spouse and it's like, for whatever reason, you haven't argued in six months, but all of a sudden you're on your way to church and the littlest thing just irritates the fool out of you. And all of a sudden there's an explosion in the car. I know what that's like. But what, what I would submit to you is that we have, to, we have to forethink those things. We have to forethink those discussions because we are not just coming to a place. We're coming to a house of worship. And we're not just coming to be with each other as meaningful as that is and cannot be underestimated or overestimated. As meaningful as that is, we are not primarily coming for one another. We're coming because a guest is also coming. And we want to make sure that he feels welcome when he arrives. And so this is what I believe. I believe that if we will do this well, that we will experience God at a different measure than if we did not. And you say, I don't know, that sounds like you're comparing churches and different things like that. I mean, call it what you want to, but scripturally speaking, there are places that Jesus went when he felt welcome, and there are places he didn't go when he didn't feel welcome. And so I want us to be a house of worship and prayer, 
but welcoming of the presence of God. We've not just prepared the sanctuary and prepared a sermon and prepared songs. We've prepared our hearts because we're ready for an encounter with the king of the ages. And so I would even, I would even go as far as to submit this to you. Um, even if God doesn't move in an extra measure, or we don't see things that otherwise we may not see. Here's the bottom line. We are definitely spending more focused and quality time with Jesus, right? And this is what I want you to grab a hold of. Listen, you, you realize this man, this nobleman, he did not live in Cana. He came from 20 miles away in Capernaum. He traveled where? To where Jesus was. And I'm going to tell you this. We believe that a harvest is coming. We believe that. And whether they come because they see miraculous and signs and wonders and people's legs growing out and all this kind of stuff, whether they come for that or whether they simply come because they know the presence of Jesus is here, I don't really care. I just want to see the harvest come. And we'll be all the better for it. Amen? So, so what the miracle reveals to us is that Jesus responds to us based off how we respond or how we host or reject his presence. Number two, the miracle also reveals that Jesus responds to intercession. Now, the man, again, he's traveled, traveled from Capernaum. It's about 20 miles away. It's about a day walk, okay? Um, maybe if he had a horse or an animal, it may have been a little bit quicker, maybe, you know, part of a day, but about a day's walk. His son has a fever, which appears to be incurable because the Bible, the, the literal translation is, he said, my son is dying. It's interpreted, my son is withering away. He was at the point of death, right? And so you have this nobleman that comes all this way. And the reason we call him a nobleman is because the word that's used in the Greek, it's, it's a word I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try to. But it basically, what it is associated with is a person of royalty that is not the king, but is connected to the king. And so in the instance of this, you, you not only have a son, but you have a royal son, perhaps even an heir to an inheritance, or maybe he's the last son and he is the only hope for the lineage of this father. We don't, we don't really know. That's, that's mere speculation. But this is what we do know. When this father shows up on the scene, he is in full desperation mode. He is, he is in full desperation mode. He is begging the King James uses the word beseeching. He kept beseeching Jesus, please come, heal my son. Jesus would say some things, and it's almost like the man ignored everything that Jesus said. And he said, just please come, just please come, whatever you got to say. Tell me on the way, but please just come. And this is a moment of intercession. This is a moment where a father is coming on behalf of his son, to engage with God that God may pour out his spirit and help the son. I'll tell you this, desperation, though I hate living in a place of desperation, nobody enjoys living in a place of desperation, but let me tell you this, desperation fuels faith in a way that hopefully none of us can, will ever have to experience. But, but let me say this, I, I do believe that, that it is possible that we see miracles more in nations that are third world or poverty stricken or whatever, not only because they don't have the modern medicines and physicians that we have in the States, but also because they are fully just reliant on the miracle. If, if God doesn't, they die. 
There's no chemo. There's no blood pressure medicine. There's not a specialist. If God doesn't, this person dies. And all of a sudden, the faith rises. Now, I'm not, I'm not down on medicine. I love medicine. I'm t- trust me. Look, I got medicine in my pocket, okay? I love medication because I will tell you this. I believe that me- the invention of medication is a type of modern miracle, that God enabled men and women in their minds, that he broke into time and space and planted thoughts in their mind so that they could develop medication so that we could be better. I am not against medication, and, and I feel sorry for anybody who is, okay? But let me say this, that the reliance on the things of this world can oftentimes be a hindrance of our faith. And so when we see this man, he's got nothing to rely on. His wealth means nothing. He is a man who has a boy who's dying. And he doesn't care who sees him. He doesn't care who hears him. He doesn't care who even wonders if he's talking to this strange man named Jesus. He doesn't care. He's in full desperation mode. And the Bible says that he comes and he's beseeching. We see this principle that Jesus talks about in Mark 6, um, um, the ask principle, right? Ask, seek, and knock. Continuously coming, continuously coming. Lord, please come to my son. This is a beautiful illustration of what intercession is. Intercession is when a person stands between God and another. And on the behalf of another, they beseech God. They say, Father, will you do a work for this person? God, will you come and save their soul? God, will you come and heal their body? God, will you come and do whatever? This is illustration of what intercession is. Now, one of the first times we see intercession is in Genesis 18. You remember this, right? God is coming and he is about to pour out the wrath on Sodom. The Bible says that three like angelic beings, they come and they're talking to Abraham and Sarah. They confirm the promise of God, but quickly they tell them that we are now going to Sodom because God is going to rain down judgment, right? The Bible says that the men or the angelic hosts, they turned away and went towards Sodom But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Sodom, Father, intercessor. God, if you find a hundred righteous people, will you please spare them? Father, if you find 50, will you please spare them? God, if you find 10, even one, will you do? This is intercession. It's the back and forth. Um, I was reading uh, last year some of the saints of the last uh, couple thousand years and just interesting things that, that they had read. And there was, there was a woman named Julian of Norwich, and this is what was written. Somebody asked, what, how would you define intercession? And this is what was written. I look at God, I look at you, and I look back at God. I look at God, I look at you, I look back at God. I look at God, I look at you, I look back at God. It's not a look at God. Look at you and I'm done. It's a constant intercession. Father, I'm beseeching you on behalf. God, would you please come? God, would you please release? We see this in um, Moses and Aaron. As the children of Israel, they're going through the wilderness. Korah rises up this rebellion. He's got all these incredible supposed men of God of the community. They're all speaking against Moses and Aaron. And the Bible says that God, he pours out a plague on the people and thousands of people are dying. But what does Aaron do? He runs in the midst of them. The Bible says he stands between the living and the dead. 
and he intercedes on their behalf. Father, will you please stop the plague of these people? God, will you please spare the babies? God, will you please help? It's this constant looking to God, looking at something else, and looking back at God, this constant back and forth. And can I just, can I just take a, just a pastoral second here? And by the way, there's no way that we're going to get to the cautions. I'll save that for another time. Um, the cautions of miracles. Um, but can I, just, can I just remind you? And dude, I, I want to say how much I appreciate Pastor Justin. Um, he is our prayer pastor here at Christian Life, if, if you're not aware of it. But his heart for intercession and for prayer on behalf of our church family and even the prayer for tonight for all the pastors. Um, I just want to remind you that even the smallest intercession means so much to heaven. It means so much in heaven. We dismiss the, the prayers that we breathe. God help them. Heaven doesn't dismiss those. We dismiss when we have interceded for so long and we don't see the fruit, we don't see the result, we, we dismiss it and we say that Maybe I didn't have enough faith of the intercession. Heaven does not see it through that lens. And we have to mature beyond that where we feel like we have failed when we have fulfilled the call that God has placed on us. The Lord, the Lord gave me a dream, and I'm not going to go into it, um, but... The Lord gave me a dream, and, and for the first time in my life, this is fairly recently, but for the first time in my life, I began to understand the gravity that the smallest intercessions have. Maybe not in the natural that we see, but definitely in the supernatural that we do not see. And so I just want to encourage you once again, please don't take for granted. Please don't, please don't dismiss or underestimate the value of your intercession. When you look to God and you look to your babies who were rebelling against God and you look back to God, even if there are no words, even if there are no words, never underestimate the power of your intercession. I'm so sorry. Number three, and we'll wrap up here. Number three is this, through this miracle, it reveals to us that Jesus responds to faith. Scripture says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went on his way. Now, when you do the math, it's not until the next day that the man encounters the servants. It's the next day. Because he says, at what hour was my son healed? And they said, yesterday at 1 p.m. So you've got to understand that this man receives this word from Jesus at 1 p.m. And he doesn't go immediately home to see his dying child. Can you fathom? Can you fathom not rushing home? Now, I don't know. The man may have had business there. And I don't know. We, we just don't know. But it's got to strike us to some degree. That this man has just besieged and the Messiah has said, your son is going to live. And the man just hangs out in Cana overnight when his son is literally withering away. 
This faith is what Jesus responds to. This faith of like, look, C.S. Lewis, you know how I love C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. He said, you can't know, you can only believe or not believe. You can't know, you can only believe or not believe. It's your choice. In this moment, this man can't know, but what he chooses to do is believe. And his faith is at such a level that he says, I'm not rushing to get back home because I believe the word of Jesus. I'm not rushing to get back home because I have faith in what God has just spoken to me. And he is so much that he is able to rest overnight. I'm telling you, my faith's not that big. I'm ashamed to say it. But if my baby is withering at home, I'm traveling overnight through the sea, through danger, through anything that I can to get home to my baby. This man's faith was through the roof that he was able to rest overnight in Cana and he meets up with his servants the next day. And you know what his servants say? His servants, ironically, his servants say this. The very words that Jesus said, your son lives. As I thought about it, I was like, the servant's words matched God's words. And I started thinking when we pray and when we intercede and when we're, 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 we're trying to experience God in a new level, I started thinking about that and I, I wondered, I thought, Corey, when you're, when you're walking through things like this, are your words matching the words of Jesus? Does your word match the word of God as we go through this, right? Like, so, so when, when, when I have a child who is gone astray, do I latch hold to Scripture that, again, is a general principle that I have raised my children in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not turn from it? Again, that is a general principle. It is not a fail-safe, but it's still in Scripture, and I'm still going to latch hold to that, and my words in prayer are going to match the words of Jesus. So I'm going to say, Father, I have raised my children in the way that they should go, and I'm praying, God, that when they grow old, they will not return, or they will return to it. And so, so the question of whether our words match the words of Jesus is truly another sermon in and of itself. But this man had faith, the faith that was confident, fully reliant, no other options. It was not faith that was aroused in a moment. This man didn't travel 20 miles to Capernaum, show up and see Jesus and say, oh, now all of a sudden I'm going to have faith. When he heard of Jesus, he left Capernaum. His faith was already in place. So as we approach God in prayer, it's, it's important for us to understand that when, in order to see God move in many ways, it's not that we have to stir our faith in a moment or we got to wait for the right song that Anna's going to sing. It's, it's not anything like that that we've got to make for a moment and we got to jump in in order to receive. It's a faith that says, no. No, outside of a moment, outside of my emotion, outside of feelings, outside of what I see, I'm going to fully rely on Jesus, and I'm going to fully rely on what he said. Real quickly, let me just tie up with a thought. The word faith in this portion of Scripture is used twice here. The first time it's used... It is the man having faith. The Bible says that he believed the word that Jesus said. So it was the man that put his faith in the word of Jesus. 
But by the time the man gets back to his son who has been made well, all of a sudden his faith is no longer just in the word of Jesus. His faith is now in Jesus. For he himself believed and his household. And so it's important to notice the progression of this man's faith, right? So he begins focusing, like he has faith that there's a man I've heard about and I don't know if he's God or not. I don't even know what Messiah means. I don't, I've never even heard of Jesus or anything about this. But it's said that he possesses a power that can heal people and do things. And so I'm going to travel to Cana with this faith in the power of this man. But when he gets there, he encounters Jesus and his faith matures. It goes from faith in a power to faith in a promise that Jesus has made that your son will live. It doesn't stay there at the promise. It goes from faith in the word of God to faith in God. So it's gone from uh, faith in the power of God to a promise of God to the person of God. And then by the end, it is a faith that this man is passing along to his family and to those who know him. Right? So it's not this stagnant faith and it's not like this arousing of a moment. There's a progression of his faith that's growing to the point where this man, a Gentile, perhaps even one of King Herod's royal men, this man has gone to a place of full desperation. I, I just I, I put my faith in the power of God, to the word of God, to the person of God. And I believe this so much now that I'm going to spread this to the people that I love so much so that they can now become the children of God. So much good in the miracles of the book of John. Tonight, we're going to go ahead and wrap up, and I want to I pray for you. I'm so sorry. We're not going to get to the cautions or the pitfalls of miracles, but I promise you before this series, it just means you've got to be here every Wednesday. That's all it means, right? Um, but I promise you before the series is over, we will get to that, and um, I think we'll be better for it. So let me, let me pray for you tonight. Father, I'm so grateful for the word of the Lord that's ours tonight. Thank you for strengthening my voice for these last few minutes. And I thank you for your people that are so faithful. I pray, Lord, that you will teach us to anticipate your presence in a greater measure, to host you well, and to experience you, Lord, in a way that we never had before, so that our faith and our love in you can grow. And so, God, I pray that you will bless these precious people, that you will cause your angels to watch over them, be with them this week. We look forward to seeing them next week. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, 